Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Join us as we kick off our 20th season. We have great guests and great topics planned for this year, but to start with, we have one of our viewers' favorite and all four of the Prairie Docs. Ask the Prairie Docs, tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening, and welcome to the 20th season of On Call with the Prairie Duck. I'm Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, one of the Prairie Ducks. As we began planning for our 20th season, we were struck by the Prairie Duck's rich history of sharing honest, science-based medical information. It began in the 1990s with weekly radio programs and evolved into this television show, newspaper, and internet dis distribution we have today. Our executive producer, Joni Holm, has been here since the beginning. Tonight, Joni shares some of that background she knows so well. Hi, my name is Joni Holm, and I'm the president of the board of directors for Healing Words Foundation. We are starting our 20th season, and we're so excited about it. We're gonna give you a little bit of history uh, of what we've done throughout the, the 20 seasons, uh, what really what Rick has done, and what we continue from his work uh, Rick had a passion for health education, and while he was practicing, he also wanted to do education. He started with a simple radio show that was a half-hour call-in show, and from that, it just developed. He had a television show starting with some pilot shows uh, that, that didn't take off right away, but over time, he kept trying. and. A half-hour show developed into an hour-long live television show every Thursday night. What you know is On Call with Prairie Doc. I know many of you are viewers and enjoy the show and have gained a lot of education through this show. While he was producing the show and practicing medicine, he was able to write two books. He wrote The Picture of Health, A View from the Prairie with Dr. Judith Peterson, and he also wrote Life's Final Season, A Guide for Aging and Dying with Grace. With each television show, an essay was written to encapsulate the show. The radio show continues along with podcasts, the Prairie Doc Perspectives, the newspaper articles, Play, Eat, Sleep, a pediatric branch of our programming, as well as the Hopeful Spirit Chorale, which is a choir that was developed by Rick to give comfort to people in hospice. Unfortunately, in 2017, Rick developed pancreatic cancer. Despite his diagnosis and radiation, chemotherapy, and surgery, he continued all of his efforts in health education. In the spring of 2020, Rick demonstrated to his family and to the world how to die with grace. Four Prairie Docs have stepped up to take the role as host on call with the Prairie Doc. Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, Dr. Kelly Evans-Hollinger, Dr. Jill Cruz, and Dr. Deb Johnston. We thank them so much for continuing Rick's legacy. 
They recruit medical professionals throughout the state and the country to help them to educate the public. Throughout the extensive history of On Call with the Prairie Doc and the Prairie Doc programming, we have worked hard to maintain the goal to enhance health and diminish suffering by communicating useful information based on the honest science and provided in a respectful and compassionate manner. We have produced 654 episodes of our on-call programming. We currently estimate our reach to individuals throughout the, the world at about 600,000 reaches per month, or 600,000 touches per month. Thank you, Joni. It is truly amazing how much effort and love Dr. Holm put into this organization and how it continues to guide us today. So, uh, here we are. How did you, Kelly, become a prairie doc? Oh, what does that mean to you? Oh gosh, I think if I'm sitting here in 20 more years, Andrew, I will still think of Rick Holm. Um, so I'm relatively new to medical practice. I've been in practice here now for about five years, but um, I will never forget my first interaction with On Call with the Prairie Doc was actually when I was just out of college. I was applying to medical school, and at the time I was waiting tables at a local sports bar. And I was waiting tables one night, and Rick came in with his family. And as I'm serving Rick his beer, he was in my section, he said, hey, Kelly, you know, so I'm from Brookings. And so I, I was around um, the same age as a couple of Rick's um, own children. So I knew who I was. And he said, I hear you're applying to medical school. Why don't you come shadow with me on whatever day he asked me. So I show up on in, in a morning. It was like one of my first shadowing experiences ever. And as soon as we finish rounding in the hospital, he says, all right, get in the car. We're going to the radio station. And I thought, <laughs> we're going to the radio station? <laughs> what on earth? And I, we pull up and we go in there and he puts a microphone in front of my face. You know, I have... I have nothing to teach anybody or tell anyone, but that was the faith that Rick had in anyone to be an educator and in the, the mission of what he was doing was that it was inclusive of everyone who had something to say. And um, I think that really represent, you know, and then as soon as I was back in practice, I was a guest on the show. He really, he really worked to make sure he was including people who, um, were relatable to his audience and um, he, he felt, he, he just really always felt like he valued you when you were with him. And he valued the people that watch the show and thought it was really important. So I'm excited to be here and still be a part of it. Yes, and so now we're at 20 seasons. Yeah. <laughs> and to celebrate our 20th season, we have a new set design, a new logo, and even a new weekly contest. Instead of a quiz, we will draw one prize winner from all questions submitted by you, the viewers, during the first 20 minutes of the show. The winner will be announced at the end of the program. Be sure to provide your name and contact information when you submit your questions. One thing that has not changed is our goal to consistently deliver truthful, tested, and timely medical information. And in our quest to attain that goal, we have all four of the Prairie Docs here on set to answer your question about anything medical. Call in your questions to 1-888-376-6225, send us an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or post on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. Joining me in the studio are Dr. Kelly Evans-Hollinger, Dr. Deb Johnston, 
and Dr. Jill Cruz. What does it mean to you, to you Jill, to be a prairie doc? I think it's, um, the prairie doc is, is Rick Holm, and, yeah. and he was the quintessential, the doctor that you could sit down with, have a cup of coffee, and know that you're getting honest answers that come from the heart from someone who truly cares about you and your health, and is local to the community, knows the area, knows you, goes to church with you and your family, sees your kids at the football game, and is involved in you more than just your diagnosis. Involved with yeah. you as a person, that's a prairie doc. And we may not have all the answers. We may not. But we'll do our best. And we'll find someone who can. Exactly, yeah. If there's an answer to be had. How about you, Deb? <laughs> you know, I have to agree, the prairie doc will always be Rick. and emulating and following in his um, example of being as intellectually honest as possible, being willing. One of the things I loved most about Rick and that I tried m my best as a teacher myself um, is that Rick was always willing to change his mind if he was presented yeah. with information that that contradicted what he had known previously. So that is just a really important part of intellectual honesty. It's an important part of science, being willing to say, well, I thought that, but this new evidence says that it's wrong. So that was one of the things I loved most about Rick when I was a student. I did my last two years of residency here in Brookings, and Rick was one of my mentors. And he took me to the radio station with great regularity, and I loved the way that Rick could correct you without making you feel like you were a total worthless idiot. <laughs> and I loved the way that Rick would respond if you could if you could correct him and show him where he was wrong. Rick would change his position. So I think that that's what it means to be a prairie doc, to be as intellectually honest as you possibly can to be as forthright and concerned about the person in front of you as you possibly can, and to have a passion for disseminating that information. Rick really did. I think of that small town family doc that I wanted to be when I went into medical school, um, and that I knew from growing up in Madison with Dr. Richard Sample, um, or so many other countless doctors across the state and the region that, that are, were there for their communities and are there for their communities. And, mm -hmm. and, and maybe they're not doing everything anymore because one person can't do everything. That's why there's four of us here <laughs> right. tonight. None of us are Rick Holm. Yeah, none of us are Rick Holm. <laughs> but we'll do our best and we'll, we'll take turns and, mm. uh, and, and we'll be there for our patients and, and we'll, we'll uh, try to help guide them through along the way. And, um, I, I think you, it's interesting you mentioned that my, my grandpa had been a uh, physics professor and he had a saying, in light of new evidence, <laughs> you know, I mean, because that's it. It's, you have to be, well, it's not like we're flip-flopping or whatever, it's just as uh, things change over time and you have to be willing to change mm -hmm. too. Well, we've already got some great questions. Let's do it. And the number one question I've been asked this week is about the COVID booster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so, Deb, who is supposed to get the COVID booster shot? Okay, so right now, the people that should be getting their COVID booster are people whose immune systems 
are compromised for some reason. So people that have a history of um, a blood cancer, like a lymphoma, a multiple myeloma, something on that should definitely get it. People who are actively being treated for a solid cancer, if you're actively being treated for your breast cancer, or your prostate cancer, or your lung cancer, people who are taking certain medications that make their immune system not work, so that might be people with certain rheumatologic diseases mm -hmm. or pulmonary diseases maybe that are on steroids, um, people who have a primary problem with their immune system. So right now it's a pretty narrow spectrum. Um, after discussing it with his doctor, my 92-year-old father-in-law who doesn't have any of those is not getting his third dose yet. Mm -hmm. So it is really a very narrow spectrum of people that are going to be eligible right now. Um, eventually it looks like they're going to recommend a dose at eight months for most of us, uh, but that's still a little up in the air. Mm -hmm. So don't, don't be eager. And it's also important to remember that we set that timing for a reason. I mean, if you look at baby shots, mm -hmm. Kelly doesn't see very many baby shots, <laughs> but the rest of us here children. do. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true, okay, you, you see it for your children. Um, when we do those boosters, we have them at that interval because that's what we know provokes the best immune response. So don't be, I know we're all impatient, but don't be too eager to get that shot ahead of time. It may not be as beneficial to you as if you had waited for that eight-month mark. And we want to wait till it's studied enough and to yes. know yeah. what's yep. helpful and what's safe. Yep, mm -hmm. yep. So it's and there's no real reason to think it's not safe to get it early. It just may not be as useful mm -hmm. right. as it could have been otherwise. Excellent. We did have a question. I'm a healthy young man in my 20s. I did, however, contract COVID earlier this year. Do I need to get vaccinated? What would you say to, to Great. him? question and one that I've gotten a lot. The answer is yes, uh, we would recommend that anyone who has had COVID infection previously um, get vaccinated. And there's a couple of reasons. One big reason is over these last few months of the summer, this COVID virus that's circulating in the community looks different than it did earlier in the year. And we are seeing people who had uh, infection with the COVID virus earlier in the pandemic have likelihood of reinfection with the Delta variant. Um, so you're, you're, you may not have as much immunity that's lasting as we maybe thought someone did early in the pandemic uh, for that reason. And frankly, what, what we've seen is that immune responses in vaccinated people are simply better than people who had natural infection. Um, so, you know, most a lot of people who've been through infection no, they don't want to go through that again if they can possibly help it. So yes, that would I would recommend that person get their vaccine. Yeah. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. There's been studies showing mm -hmm. that vaccine immunity can be better. There's been some mixed yeah. ones or retrospective studies where you know maybe natural. They both can help give immunity, right. getting it naturally or getting right. the shot, but both of them can decrease over time. Yeah. And so whether it's a booster vaccine mm -hmm. or getting vaccinated for the first time can give Probably you- Probably gives you prolonged immunity. And especially in the setting of people who were, like I said, infected earlier in the pandemic before the right. Delta variant really was the dominant variant, definitely a strong indication to get vaccinated. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I, this gets a little detailed, but with natural immunity, your body is building antibodies to all different parts of the virus. Mm -hmm. And some of those antibodies it builds might not actually help. Right. Hopefully it does. 
-hmm. but it may or may not build an antibody to the spike protein. Mm -hmm. And so whereas the vaccine immunity is going to give you antibody to that spike protein to help make it less likely to, to get right. it, or at least less likely to have a severe case right. uh, or hospitalization. Mm -hmm. So Yeah. yeah. Um, a man from Madison, South Dakota, has spoken to physicians who are not completely in favor of the COVID vaccine. What are your opinions, or why wouldn't they be in favor, do you think? Well, you get 100 people together, you are going to find people that have varying opinions. And that is regarding, you know, ask someone what their favorite color is. Yep. You're going yep. to have people with different ideas. Uh, I would say as a great majority, the doctors are all in favor of vaccines. There is a very small minority who are against it. And if you look at the national organizations, the American Academy of Physicians, the American Academy of Family Practice, American Academy of Pediatricians, all these big medical groups have come out with statements saying, this is what we believe, and we believe that vaccines are good, and a majority of our members agree with this. There's always going to be some dissidents with any stance or any opinion, um, you know, whether it's you know, treating heart attacks or treating cholesterol, you know, there's always going to be someone who disagrees, mm -hmm. and that's okay. Uh, but I would say the great majority of physicians uh, showed our support for it, not only by telling our patients to get it, but by getting it ourselves and by yes. giving it to our loved ones. I would not get the vaccine if I did not think it was important for me, and I would not give it to my family members if I did not think it was important for them. So my family, who are age eligible, are fully vaccinated, and I'm waiting for my children, who are nine and 10, to become eligible. And as soon as we get the approval to give it to them, I'm gonna get them in line to get their vaccine because mm -hmm. I care. My son turned 12 last week and he got his vaccine. Aww, Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and he's doing, doing great. Yeah. You know, we're human too. And we can be skewed by things we read or experiences that we've had. And you know, if there's a recommendation for aspirin and we have a patient that had a bleed from aspirin, we might be a little less inclined to say, you know, everyone should be on aspirin, but you have to look at the numbers and, and look at the studies. And, and it, you know, when millions upon millions of people are getting this vaccine at once, there are going to be some people who happen to have something happen to them after getting their vaccine, which it might not be at the same rate right. as if in the total population, they have to look at that. Mm -hmm. And so whenever someone's saying, well, I know so-and-so this happened, that's, that's too bad, mm -hmm. but we don't know what the cause is always. Just and, and this is where the statistics comes in, uh, trying to separate causation and correlation. So did these two things just happen to happen at the exact same time, or did one cause the other to happen? And that's really, you know, it, some things it's hard to say, and that's why you need these big studies with massive power um, in a statistical sense to say, okay, this is what we need to worry about, and this is your risk. And I think that that was an important lesson with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine when they put the pause on it and said, hey, we're seeing a higher rate of these blood clots. You know, blood clots happen. I, I think we've mm -hmm. all dealt with patients that had random blood clots for no good reason. Long before um, COVID. Long yes. before COVID, long before COVID. Um, so having one or two of those events might get your attention, but you have to show that those events are more 
than you'd expect from just the normal course of the population. So it, yes, it's, it's intimidating when that happens, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the vaccine is, is responsible. Uh, in the Johnson & Johnson case, they decided yes, it was. That was more than you'd expect for statistics. And that's why that monitoring is so important. Um, but still, for the vast majority of people, you're much safer with that Johnson & Johnson vaccine than with COVID, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing that I'd just like to point out to that question, the most recent statistics that I read were that 95% of physicians were immunized themselves. Yeah. So I think that that speaks very much to how safe we think this vaccine is and how important we think this mm -hmm. vaccine is. Mm -hmm. And I know my, my daughter turned 16 shortly after they reduced the age eligibility to 12. And I had been teasing her all summer that, or all year, that as soon as she turned 16, I was sneaking a dose home and shooting her up in the middle of the night at 12.01, <laughs> which was less effective as a threat than a mother might hope um, as a teasing because she was so eager to get that vaccine. It wasn't even funny. So we we all believe in vac in the vaccine and let alone myocarditis blood clots yes. whatever is a lot and, higher and with covid the concern yeah. about what are the lasting lung damage going to be yeah. even mm -hmm. um, i was reading something recently about the the cruise ship where they had had that um, 72 people were asymptomatic but tested positive and then doing the CT scans and seeing the, the lung injury on the CT scan in asymptomatic people. So what is that going to mean in 10 years for those people in their lungs? And, you know, we're, I, I think that vaccine is just going to be real important and important to keep from spreading it to other people as much as we can. When do you foresee women that are currently pregnant being able to get the booster? Hmm, that's a great question. I think, I mean, I think the important point to hit as we talk about this question is that all large um, societies of obstetrics strongly recommend vaccination of pregnant women or women who might become pregnant. All of the stuff out there about concerns about fertility has been fully debunked. The American College of OB-GYN fully endorses it. And unfortunately we have seen pregnant women get extremely yes. sick with COVID. Um, I, I'm seeing my my colleagues who practice in the ICUs around the country say, if I never have to do a C-section in the ICU emergently again, it will be too soon because unfortunately pregnancy is a risk factor for very severe disease. So point number one, I, I, I get the, the impression from this question that this person maybe is pregnant and is already vaccinated and is wondering about a booster. That's a great question and I don't know the answer to that. They may not be excluded from the recommendation that comes out about all right. adults. It, they may include pregnant women. I don't know the answer to that. But mm -hmm. the most important thing would be just getting vaccinated yes. in the first place right. for, for anyone, pregnant or not. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and we know that, per, that the biggest benefit mm -hmm. is going to yeah. be, and especially, especially for pregnant, for pregnant yeah, people. Yeah, or thinking about. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. And they're showing with that that the infants of these women who are vaccinated when they're pregnant are showing some antibodies and protection. Which is great. Which is amazing because yeah. there's no other way to protect those infants. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. The ongoing pandemic has caused overwhelming amounts of stress for many people while navigating through unprecedented events. Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt spoke with mental health therapist Nikki Eining about coping with pandemic stress. Nikki Eining has been helping people with their mental health for 15 years, and the COVID-19 pandemic has brought some new challenges. 
the last 18 months have brought stressors that have created a lot of uncertainty, unpredictability, um, and a need to practice radical acceptance. And when we talk about radical acceptance, we try to really focus on um, something that's out of my control. So a pandemic, a global pandemic that I cannot control has occurred and is continuing to occur in some capacity. Eining says people must recognize parts of their lives that are in their control. And that might look different for everybody, depending upon the needs for my family, the needs for myself, the needs for my loved ones around me. Um, and so how do I best care for myself and for my family members or friends with the, the best information that I have provided by my medical provider? Eining says our bodies are built to withstand 20 minutes of stress at a time. And for the last 18 months, a lot of us have experienced stress longer than 20 minutes. And so what our nervous system does um, is adapt to that experience of stress. So it starts to release um, increased cortisol, increased epinephrine, which is adrenaline, into our system. And we might be experiencing difficulties with sleep, um, difficulties with exhaustion, maybe uh, at times we feel like difficulties with our breathing. Um, so we might be experiencing stress on all different levels. Accessing concrete supports like friends and family, your medical provider, or a therapist or counselor can help cope with stress, but there are still other things you can do on your own as well, such as breathing and exercise. Deep breathing and mindfulness is a wonderful support for that. Oxygen is the number one thing that increases the um, concept to my brain and my nervous system that I'm safe and okay. So can I kind of slow down and take those deep breaths and increase that oxygen level? Yeah, the, the deep breathing is something I enjoy doing with my patients when I'm talking about it. You know, let's just do it all together once. Yeah. It always helps, and it doesn't take long, so please do. Can you teach my kids? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, thankfully, we got some great questions again. Another opportunity to ask any medical questions of the four of us. Call 1-888-376-6225 or send us an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc, Prairie Doc Facebook page. Um, a Sioux Falls man asks, as an elderly male with a number of specialty docs and primary care physicians, how does a patient feel any continuity with his care when seeing a hospitalist? It seems confusing and disconnected for the patient. Jill, I might ask you that question. <laughs> All right, considering I am transitioning to a role of, as a hospitalist in October here. So a hospitalist is a physician who just works in the hospital. And that's where you get your continuity while you're in the hospital. Now, uh, if they're in the Brookings Hospital, I have access to both Sanford charts, I have access to Vera charts. So if you are seen in any of the local clinics, I will have access to that and your doctors are only a phone call away. So if I have questions, I can call them. They will always get uh, what's called a discharge summary where I basically said, this is why you came to the hospital, this is what happened, these are the tests we did, these are the things that you'll need to follow up or you might want to recheck when you see them back. Because we usually have people 
touch base with their primary care doctor you know, within three to seven days after being discharged, kind of depending on the, the problem, to make sure that nothing new is going on and that they're doing well at home. So a hospitalist is really just someone who gives you their undivided attention while you're in the hospital and is not split between trying to do quick see people in the hospital and then run back to clinic and do stuff and if there's something going on the nurses you know the way we used to do it the nurses would try to wait or they would try to call and catch you in between patients if they had a question that hospitalist is there they're in the hospital physically you know if your family pops in and say hey can i talk to the doctor call us we'll be there well we we can sit down instead of having families literally camp out for hours waiting for the doctor to show up, will they show up at eight? Will they show up at five? Will it somewhere in, I mean, we're like the cable guys, you know? Yeah. Anytime between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m., you may see a doctor. So I think with the hospitalist, it's gonna be much easier to get a hold of a physician to talk about what's going on with your family member. And it, it is a different role, and hospital medicine is complex, and so you want someone who does it day in and day out every day rather than just a little bit here, a little bit there. You know, they may have a, a patient admitted once a week or, you know, once or two, three times a month. You want someone who's regularly seen inpatient. So I think that definitely it ends up being a strength. Uh, and they can contact the specialist. You know, we'll know who your specialists are. We can see the notes. And our whole goal is to be part of the same team and to give the patients the best care well, and then send you back and say, you know, be well, be healthy, yeah. and continue working with your regular doc. And a chance to get another opinion on your care. Exactly. And that's, that's focusing on your entire person rather than, you know, different parts. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, my husband and I just moved to Brookings from Kamano Island, Washington. Welcome to Brookings. Welcome. Yeah. Do we still need to take our weekly dose of vitamin D? What do you say about vitamin D, Kelly? Uh, it's interesting. I think vitamin D has had its run of really being touted as the cure-all for everything, and it's maybe not. Um, so what I would say is if you've been known to have vitamin D deficiency in the past, probably okay to stay on your vitamin D. It's it's rare, it's pretty much unheard of for vitamin D to cause toxicity. So, you know, there's not a lot of harm in it if you just wanna stay on it. If, you know, sometimes when people ask me that, I say, well, you know, go off of it for a couple months. Let's actually check your level and see if you need it or not. Definitely there are long periods of time where we don't get sun, but frankly, you know, some people make enough vitamin D and some people just don't. So it's hard to know without actually checking a level and also knowing if you have a, a condition that really depends on vitamin D, something like osteoporosis or other bone diseases. Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. kidney issues that right. can affect mm -hmm. your vitamin D absorption. Right. Mm -hmm. So if your bones are weak with mm -hmm. osteoporosis, mm -hmm. that'd be a good reason. Yeah. Um, like I said, there's not a huge downside, but I'm, I love telling people that they don't need pills, whether yeah. they're vitamins or not, so. Yeah, <laughs> very good. A caller from South Dakota asked, metformin was developed to treat diabetes, is now being tested for use for heart disease and for weight control. The study is being done by Mayo. What information do the docs know about this study? Well, we may not know exactly about the study, but right. I mean, what would you have anything to or anyone have anything to say about that? I mean, metformin is kind of well known for helping with weight loss, mm -hmm. but boy, uh, it's kind of limited because of the diarrhea, the side effects that people have that. Uh, I am not familiar with anything about the heart 
No, um, not either. Yeah, right. other than insofar as it helps control diabetes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, and it's interesting that it's being studied though, because yeah. you know the newer drugs. There's, there's kind of an interesting development in that mm -hmm. in the last five to ten years, kind of a prerequisite to getting diabetes drugs approved has to do with studying their cardiovascular outcomes. Well, so many years ago, when metformin yeah. and some other drugs mm -hmm. were approved, that wasn't really required of them. So, you know, metformin may be shown to have similar cardiovascular benefits to something like these new drugs like empagliflozin, for, for example, but it just has never been studied that way. I have, That's an interesting theory, but. Mm -hmm. I have heard of studies showing that metformin independent, apart from letting it, having it help your diabetes, help control your blood sugars, of improving some of those other goals, mm -hmm besides just improving your blood sugars, mm -hmm. or decreasing your risk of some of these things. So I'm sure that's probably what they're looking right. at. But. Mm -hmm. yeah, I've heard a uh, decrease in all-cause mortality in patients with, with diabetes with metformin, which is why it's kind of your cornerstone yeah, baseline medication that almost everyone with diabetes we start with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Type 2 diabetes. Type 2, yes. type 2. Type two. Th thank mm -hmm. you for the clarification. Yes. And, and <laughs> thankfully, cheap and generic. Cheap yes. and generic. A Facebook viewer wants to know if people with MS are immune compromised. Well, it depends. If, if they're on a medication that modifies their MS, absolutely. There are a lot of multiple sclerosis drugs that are immunocompromising. Um, so that answer would be yes. I don't know if just the disease state would necessarily put you in that category. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't, not that I am aware. Yeah, I agree. It, if you have a question about that, it's definitely a talk to your neurologist or talk to your primary yeah. care doctor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This one's a little longer with a couple parts. <laughs> We'll do our best. My blood pressure sometimes gets over 200, which of course is way too high. Then when I have my bowel moves with Miralax at bedtime, my blood pressure suddenly drops. Mm -hmm. I've had two bowel resections with adhesions. I have internal vibrations pounding within my body. My feet feel hot and my legs have a burning sensation up into my groin. I have passed many tests as negative, including peripheral neuropathy. She's wondering what's going on. Could something be pressing on a nerve? Is there some way to check for adhesions without surgery? Um, you know, it, this patient's come to you and, and they've got a variety of issues going on. How would you approach them? What would you say if they're asking you some of these questions? You know, when I, I, when I encounter a patient who like this might have multiple different complaints, but maybe they've gone on for a similar time period, the first question I really try to ask myself is, is there an explanation that could explain all of these things? And as I listen to the, the question there, I'm not sure I can come up with one single thing that maybe explains all this patient's symptoms. You know, maybe there's a smarter person out yeah. there that could easily do that. But sometimes, it's, I, in my experience, it's more likely that someone has more than one common thing going on than one rare thing going on to cause their three yeah. different issues. But that's sometimes that takes time to tease out. I, we don't usually mm -hmm. figure it out in the first visit yeah. or a round of exams and testing. Mm -hmm. So the I, first year. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think yeah. it's crucial for a patient. It sounds like this patient is kind of suffering to have mm -hmm. a good relationship with their primary care provider that, that they can go back and talk to as things evolve. And might need to tackle some of this one, ah. one thing at yep. a time, not all in one visit. Right. right. And I think the other thing to consider is that sometimes having an answer and relieving suffering aren't the same thing. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it, one of the goals should be how do we relieve the suffering and not just 
how do we fix what's going on, how do we figure out and how do we fix what's going on, but relieving suffering can be a goal too, mm -hmm. and you don't have to choose to pursue one or the other. Maybe some relief of suffering while some of these investigations are even just waiting to see Sometimes you just have to get to that point where whatever is going on evolves to the point that we can identify and recognize it. And the last part was, is there some way to check for adhesions without surgery? No, <laughs> not, not a <laughs> I mean, imaging I, I sometimes can suggest it. It can but suggest but it's it. not perfect. But no, yeah. the best way is actually to look inside the yeah. body. Adhesions are like spider webs. Yeah. And you really can't see a spider web on an x-ray, a CT scan, an MRI, I mean, it's very, you know, it's your body's own tissue that's kind of interlocking or, or causing the scar tissue building up with surgery. So, nope. As a d doctor who wanted to be a surgeon when I went into med school and then changed to family practice because I loved everything about medicine and, and couldn't commit to one specialty, uh, yes, I spent a lot of time learning about adhesions. and. In this situation, surgery might not be the answer either. No, and honestly, because each surgery can cause more adhesions, so yeah. it can turn into this, you know, never-ending loop where you do a surgery to take down adhesions, which sometimes will be done if they're having bowel obstructions or um, you know areas where an adhesion wraps around an organ and pinches off a blood supply. Then they would do something, but otherwise. No, if it's kind of causing this intermittent pain, as stool is kind of passing through an area that's a little tight, you know, that generally won't be something they would do surgery to relieve because, again, you can cause more problems and unfortunately not solve the problem. Yeah. A Rapid City viewer wants to know if Parkinson's disease ever goes into remission similar to how lupus does. I don't no, think so. I, I mean, you know, in medicine, you know. miracles happen or mm -hmm. things that we can't explain happens, or sometimes things are misdiagnosed mm -hmm. or, you know, because Parkinson's isn't always 100% clear. But I've never heard of that anyway. There are varying aggressive treatments for Parkinson's, from medicines to more invasive things like deep brain stimulation, but um, not a cure and generally not a remission disease. Mm -hmm. And everybody's disease is a little different. Mm -hmm. Some people progress very quickly and other people have a much more indolent course, but it is unfortunately a disease that just keeps going. Mm -hmm. An Aurora viewer wants to know if there are any new drugs on the horizon that cure Alzheimer's. Mm. There's, there's again, no, yeah, <laughs> gosh. Um, yeah, but if, if we see it in my lifetime, it will be miraculous um, because it is such a devastating disease in so many ways, but the answer is no. Um, we don't have great treatments for Alzheimer's, generally speaking, I would, I would argue. I mean, there are medicines approved out there for Alzheimer's to, that may slow progression, but um, they're often limited by side effects and they're, they're, they're effect size is not miraculous by any stretch of the imagination. So we have a long ways to go when it comes to treatments that are effective for Alzheimer's dementia. Um, uh, this uh, question here is, uh, I don't bring it up to be self-serving, but it, we could even approach this from a medical education standpoint. Mm -hmm. A Rapid City woman wants to know how can a patient encourage their doctors to be more like a prairie doc? <laughs> you know, one thing I would say is that um, 
sometimes having a personality match is mm -hmm. the most important thing. Um, there are patients that absolutely adore me, and there are patients that wouldn't cross the street to push me out of a, the way of a running car. <laughs> um, you know, I think that different people need different things. So mm -hmm. some people need someone to just give it to me straight, Doc, and don't, you know, don't dress this up and don't pussyfoot around. And other people really need some hand holding and um, just real a real gentle approach so I think sometimes it's a matter of finding a time of day when um, the doctor has more time or uh, other times it's simply a matter of finding the physician that has a personality and approach and style that is comfortable for you the uh as I said before, we're humans, mm -hmm. and we have our good days and our bad days too. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can catch a doc on their bad day too. Yeah. And so, uh, maybe give them another chance. And mm -hmm. and uh, go ahead. Well, and, and don't be afraid to ask questions yes. either. Yeah. And I think yeah. I think that's something that you know, write them down ahead of time so that you remember. Bring someone in with you to to remember what's said. I. I find myself when I'm on the other side with myself or a family member, sometimes I don't remember everything that happened. Mm -hmm. And look what I do. So if I don't always remember everything, why should somebody who doesn't speak my language? Yes, and don't be afraid to ask a question. If you don't understand something, we're not gonna think you're dumb, we're not gonna no. judge you, but we're not mind readers. So I may be saying stuff, I'm like, okay, they totally understand what I'm saying. And then the nurse will come in and say, can, can you come back in here? The patient had no clue what you just explained. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, I thought I did a beautiful job of explaining this. Okay, let me try a different approach. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just the same way as students don't learn the same. You know, not every teacher's teaching style works. Every doctor's teaching style doesn't always work. So sometimes we have to pivot. And, you know, if you're afraid to tell the doctor, tell the nurse. Yeah. <laughs> it, it happens a go. lot where the nurse will come back and say, hey, uh, doc, can you you know, can you go back? She has a few more questions. Mm -hmm. And I don't mind. I don't mind that at all. So tell someone that, you know, I, I still don't get it. Yeah. And that's another great use of, we call it a portal on our yeah. electronic mm -hmm. medical record system, to be able to send a message in writing. For some people, that's good because then you can go back and look at it. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different ways to facilitate communication. A Madison viewer heard that COVID tests are recently being used to test for RSV in children. What is the correlation between these two? Well, the same swab can be used to do both tests at the same time. So I don't have to swab the child's nose twice to test for RSV. So I can use a COVID swab and test for both COVID and RSV in our lab, which is super nice. And influenza. And influenza. And influenza. So yeah. I don't have to swab them three times if I wanted to look for all three. Um, it's just a really neat uh, development that our lab has mm -hmm. invested in that equipment that has that capability. Yeah. But they are separate tests. They are yeah. separate tests. Confused. We are not mistaking COVID for RSV or vice versa. These are separate genetic markers that are being tested for and um, pretty quite accurate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's similar to if you get your blood drawn, I can do I can check more than just right. your red blood cell count mm -hmm. on that one tube of blood. Good comparison. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. yeah, like it. Can you get the flu shot the same time as the COVID vaccine? I mean, I think the answer right now is yes. So I think we'll have a lot of people doing that this fall, I hope. Mm -hmm. And I think if you haven't had your COVID shot yet, that's a great opportunity. Go get your COVID and your flu shot at the same time. <laughs> you, you have two shoulders and two butt cheeks. That's so right. <laughs> pick your spot. An 82-year-old woman from Sioux Center has been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, Sjogren's, and has SIADH, and is wondering if she should get the COVID booster earlier than eight months. Once again, it kind of goes back to issue on medication. Exactly. Is, right. Yeah, know. there are some people with Sjogren's disease that do take immunosuppressive medication. So if that's her, then she would qualify. But not everybody with Sjogren's disease needs immunosuppressive therapy. So it depends on her medications. Sioux Falls woman is curious about the effectiveness of treating COVID using hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Who wants to talk about that? <laughs> um, I know that that is a very uh, advertised treatment, um, but there is simply no data to suggest that those treatments actually improve outcomes, and there is data to suggest that those treatments in and of themselves can be harmful. Um, so the, the scientific answer to that is that they don't help. Please don't. You can have a small study mm -hmm. or you yep. can know someone who took it and they got better. Mm -hmm. yep. But they could have gotten better had they not taken anything or had they ta taken Tylenol. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, most people with COVID right. are going to get better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank God. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, but we don't know who. Mm -hmm is and so that's why we want people to get vaccinated to help protect themselves and to help protect others mm -hmm. and that's why we want to wear masks when mm -hmm. in the settings that you might need to wear a mask mm -hmm. um, we're not wearing a mask right now because because we're, <laughs> we're on tv and we want you to understand us and see our, see our lips our faces. Mm -hmm. and we're with each other a lot yeah. And, um, we're vaccinated. and we're vaccinated <laughs> we are all vaccinated um, but but we had to calculate the risks mm -hmm. And there is some risk us being here without mm -hmm. masks on and mm -hmm. so on. And, and, and this mask isn't going to help as much as an N95 mask. Right. We do know that. Mm -hmm. And my mask protects all three of these people mm -hmm. more than it protects me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the ivermectin, I mean, what's that meant for? What's it used for? Parasites. It's used for parasites. So it's used a lot in veterinary medicine. So unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of stories in the news about people who have purchased ivermectin from a veterinary clinic or you know you see the horse paste or whatever it is, that product is i don't know anything about but veterinary medicine but are taking it in very toxic doses and ending up having problems and ending up in emergency rooms for that reason so please do not you know go out on your own and, and do that it can be very dangerous and then if a really good study comes out and says ivermectin works great mm -hmm. i will say hallelujah Let's start giving ivermectin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'll say, I guess I was wrong. But just because it said on the internet somewhere from some study that was actually made up that it was good, doesn't mean we're hiding anything. We just want to no. do the studies first yep. to make sure it's safe. And they are doing studies. And we did lots of study on hydroxychloroquine. At Avera. And at Sanford. Yeah. And Sanford. In we San did it right here in South Dakota. We yep. were looking at that as soon as the pandemic hit. But it and just. It, it unfortunately turned out not to be helpful. We yeah. would all love to have things that are more helpful, but 
we don't. Things that are cheap yeah. and, mm -hmm. and effective. Yeah. But I, I like to, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about that intellectual honesty and being willing to change exactly. when new evidence mm -hmm. comes mm -hmm. back. Exactly. I think back to the early days the of- The winner of, of tonight's drawing <laughs> oh, is oh. Michael D. <laughs> Thank you, Michael, for sending a question. Your prize will be in the mail soon. We'll be right back after this. This summer, I attended the Celebration of Life service for Dr. Rick Holm, the original Prairie Doc who founded this television show, now entering its 20th season. He died from pancreatic cancer in March of 2020, during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, and thus there was no public service at the time. Many friends and family gathered to celebrate Rick. We sat on lawn chairs, shared tales, and sang songs in a beautiful park on a gorgeous evening. We recalled stories of him being notoriously late, knocking over wine glasses with his large hand gestures, and mistakenly eating potpourri thinking it was trail mix. Themes emerged of Rick's amazing ability to accomplish so much in a day, his skill for active listening, and his passion for finding the best in people. His children shared memories of their dad, including their family bedtime prayer. Help us to be kind and honest and respect people's choices and help us to be better people tomorrow. Rick crafted that prayer from the Hippocratic Oath, the promise that doctors make when they complete their training and before they begin their careers. The oath emphasizes the medical ethics principles of beneficence, to do good, and non-maleficence, to do no harm, and the importance of patient autonomy, to respect people's choices. Listening to the home bedtime prayer, I realized how the oath had taken on new meaning for me this past year as I observed people choosing to get vaccinated for COVID-19 or not. As a primary care physician, I know Rick would have recommended vaccination for all who are eligible. He was a proponent of preventative care and vaccines help prevent disease. Rick would have listened with kindness to the concerns of each patient. He would have explained with honest science how the vaccine works and how the risk of a severe reaction from the vaccine is greatly outweighed by the benefits of being vaccinated, such as reducing the chance of serious illness and complications from COVID-19. Just as my colleagues and I are doing, Rick would have cared with beneficence for his patients that were sick with COVID-19, even if they refused the vaccine. He would have respected their choices and held their hand with no maleficence, no judgment, or condescension. At the same time, he would have celebrated with a Snoopy dance those who choose to get vaccinated, those who choose to quit smoking, to start exercising, and to eat healthier. As we carry his legacy into another decade, we continue the message of the Prairie Doc. 
Stay healthy out there, people. To celebrate our 20th season, we invite you, the audience, to tell us how this program has made a difference in your life. Please email us at ask at prairiedoc.org or mail your story to P.O. Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota. That's P.O. Box 752. To see and hear more episodes of this program, please follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. We sincerely thank you for all have welcomed us into your homes over the last 20 seasons of On Call with Prairie Doc. We're also grateful for our donors, board members, health educators, and volunteers. And that does it for tonight. From all of us here at On Call with Prairie Doc, until next time, stay, stay healthy, healthy out there, people. people. Our kidneys perform so many critical functions, it's important to ensure good function throughout our lives. We explore the preservation of kidney health and the treatment of kidney disease. Next time, On Call with the Prairie Doc. So, Mom, isn't this the year, the 20th anniversary season of the Prairie Doc? That's right. That's amazing. I, I remember when you and Dad started this idea of producing science-based medical information free for the public. That's right. And thanks to years of donations from businesses, organizations, and individuals, Prairie Doc programs are available on South Dakota Public TV, mm -hmm. Facebook, YouTube, podcasts, and our essays are printed in over 150 newspapers across many states it's and amazing. region. 150 newspapers. 150. You know, I'm grateful to serve with you on the Healing Words Foundation board and try to work to build new generations of, of listeners and followers. Many volunteers give their heart and soul to this Prairie Doc mission so that we can continue Dad's legacy of truthful, tested, timely medical information for 20, 20 seasons. <laughs> now, to help continue this important work, please follow the Prairie Doc and share our programs on all of your social media pages. To make a financial gift, please give directly to prairiedoc.org or mail to P.O. Box 752 Brookings, South Dakota. Thank, Thank you. you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, 
Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.